I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is psychiatrist Paul Conti and author of Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic. Trauma affects the body and mind, and like a transmissible contagion can spread among close friends and family and even across generations and within vast demographic groups. We're all susceptible. Paul Conti, MD, says trauma is way too prevalent, harmful, contagious, and often invisible, just like a virus. He understands trauma personally through tragic events that have taken place in his own life. 70% of adults will experience a trauma event in their lifetime, and 20% of people who experience trauma will develop PTSD. He's successfully treated this insidious, invisible epidemic for the past 15 years, Uh, and wrote this book to sound the alarm about trauma. He's a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine, completing his psychiatry training at Stanford and Harvard. Welcome to the show, Dr. Conte. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I guess in my intro, talking about your book and the work you do, uh, trauma sounds very serious, uh, harmful, invisible, contagious, kind of like COVID, I guess. It is that virus that permeates our life. So, uh, but if that's the case, then how, what can we do? How do we prevent this for impacting us in ways that obviously, as you said, are, can be catastrophic? Yes. Yes. Well, the first thing for us to do is, is to recognize that it's happening. You know, this is not a sort of soft concept, but traumas, the kind of traumas that I'm interested in, the traumas that rise to the level of overwhelming our coping skills, which can be an acute event or it can be a chronic event or it can even happen vicariously, that actually changes our brain. So there's hard science behind this that show how the changes in the brain then change our whole orientation to life, change, can change mood, anxiety, sleep. Uh, even the emotions that we attach to our memories. So the, the first thing for us to do is to recognize that this is real, that the way that I, I believe we're handling our society and events in our society promotes trauma and promotes it kind of pinging back and forth from one person to another and ultimately becoming more and more prevalent around us. And I would add to it that often we don't know that the changes from trauma have occurred. So because there's a reflexive guilt and shame and hiding so much of the time to trauma, we often aren't even aware of what's going on inside of us and that our orientation to the world has changed. Let's describe two events because you, you, you alluded to that. There can be, I don't know if this, if you can say minor trauma because trauma is trauma or less serious trauma and then you can move into more serious trauma. What would that be? What would we be how would that how, how how can we see that or how can we how do we experience that right well the the yeah, the definition of trauma that that I'm concerned with is trauma that rises to the level of overwhelming our coping mechanisms because that's the kind of trauma that's the trauma that changes our brains and the easiest way to to, to conceive of that is single event trauma so you know, a bad car accident, the loss of a loved one, uh, an assault, right? We can understand how much better how acute traumas can overwhelm us and, and change our brain. 
but the accumulative weight of chronic traumas can also have the same effect. And again, the science bears that out. There's something called the multiple hit hypothesis where multiple traumas or protracted trauma. So the trauma of being marginalized or denigrated or living in fear or living in isolation, a lot of things that have become much more prevalent, of course, over the past couple of years can have an additive effect and can change our brains in the same way that an acute trauma like an accident or an assault can change our brain. So that would be the, the last one that you described is trauma over periods of time, like with marginalized people. Also, with I would assume that would include chronic illness that one has that continues over time, that that would be um, trauma that would affect. Sure. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Physical health conditions that, that provide or create fear and vulnerability are traumatic very, very often to the people who are experiencing them. And there we can get into a, a vicious cycle because trauma impacts not just the brain, but also the body. So more than half the complaints that come to general medicine doctors are based in mental health issues. And I believe strongly 20 years of doing what I do intensively has shown me, and again, I'm not the only person to hold this opinion, that most of what goes on in, in our lives in terms of mental health problems come, comes from trauma. So trauma is making mental health problems, and mental health problems are making more than half our visits to physical medicine doctors. And, and we understand that, too, how depression, for example, promotes uh, it promotes cardiovascular disease, like heart attacks and strokes, and trauma can impact our immune system and predispose us to autoimmune diseases like lupus. So th th there is so much negative that comes of trauma physically and emotionally, but we live in a fast-paced world where the medical care systems are often trying to identify and treat some symptoms and just kind of move us on through, you know, the, the systems, and, and we don't recognize and pay attention to the root cause of the majority of our problems. So, but you've mentioned two things, how we can protect ourselves, I think, as individuals or as families, but then how do we protect ourselves from the system that doesn't recognize the trauma and treat it? As you say, I mean, if you see your physician for 15 minutes, hmm, well, that's, I don't think we're going to be able to get into just, you know, the issues that we've been talking about. So we've got a lot going on there that we need to be able to, handle if we're going to protect ourselves from trauma and prevent it from reoccurring? Um, I know that's a, I don't know if that's one or two questions, but. Well, sure. I think the first part of that is not all uh, impacts of trauma need uh, clinical care, right? Need to see a, a physician, for example, or a therapist, for example, or a clinical social worker, right? Sometimes by being able to take stock of, okay, what is our story, right? What has happened to us? Was there a time or an event where we changed and we became different? We, we stopped seeing that there were, were possibilities in life. We stopped feeling optimistic. We stopped feeling good about ourselves. But if we can identify often what has happened to us, when have things changed, then we're, we're already starting the process of helping ourselves and talking with the trusted others, which could be family, friends, clergy, right? There, there are many scenarios in which being able to identify and talk about trauma can be very helpful. If, if the trauma is making significant clinical symptoms, so suicidal thoughts, depression, high levels of anxiety, panic attacks, sleep disruption, 
then we have to very much advocate for ourselves. The, the healthcare systems, you know, are not uh, bending over backwards to, to be helpful, right? So we have to then advocate for ourselves and find the help that we need. I mean, there are very good therapists and, and treaters out there in the community, um, but we do have to be really proactive and seek them out. Um, and, and also if the health systems aren't helping us to really push that issue and to say, look, I, I'm not being helped by the 15-minute appointment that has a follow-up in two months, right? We have to push for what we need because that's ultimately part of the discussion of how we're using resources in society, right? We, we have many, many resources, but we use them often in ways that are wasteful or that don't help us in the ways we most need help. And the accumulated weight of trauma, which if you think about how trauma and the mental health issues that come from it promote, for example, addiction, right? Then you think about 100,000 opiate deaths in a year, right? And you see, okay, the toll of this is tremendous in terms of human suffering, lost human lives, and there's also a tremendous economic toll. So we have so many incentives to better recognize and address this, but that will only be done outside of a short-term mentality that looks at, you know, for example, the bottom line, you know, on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis or, you know, spends our resources in ways that are very short-sighted. So, you know, we have to recognize the problem and that it impacts all of us in order to start changing the sort of societal norms uh, that have us in such a difficult situation in the first place. So we have to be self-reflective. We have to, as you say, we have to be aware, and that's the purpose of, of, of your book, to be aware yeah. that, yeah, be aware of these traumas, and then we can maybe mitigate or do something about it before we have to go to a therapist, uh, whether it's a physician or a, you know, <clears throat> whomever. Um, so we have to train ourselves. Uh, can you give us, I mean, you gave the example of addiction. Um, Give us some more examples of how we can do this in our daily lives so we don't necessarily have to end up uh, with a professional, but we can, as you say, get our family and friends and parents or children right. on board with us. Yeah. Right. We can, be, we can look out for ourselves and for others, too, right, because the, the reflex in us after trauma is to feel a sense of guilt and shame, then we often know, for example, that something is wrong, but we don't know what to do about it, or we feel that there is nothing we can do about it, or that it will raise too much embarrassment or shame to do something about it. I mean, I can't count the number of times I've seen a person who, for example, has been assaulted, right, and through no fault of their own, right? They were assaulted. But when they talk about the assault, they talk about it from the perspective of it being their fault, right? And I write about this. I write about a lot of examples in the book. And, and, and this, is, I think, is a very classic one where someone is assaulted. After the assault, they feel a sense of insecurity in the world. Their mood is lower. Their sleep is disrupted. Maybe the person isn't taking the sort of chances to get a better job or the chances to find a good relationship partner. So something is very clearly different, right? Something is very clearly wrong, but the person has a sense of it's their fault. You know, I shouldn't have gone out when I went out. I shouldn't have worn what I wore. I mean, how many times do, do I 
here where the person then through this reflex is blaming themselves, which then creates a sort of paralysis and inability to then explore what's going on or to get help. And if we take stock of our life narratives, right, what's going on inside of us when, you know, things have changed, when have they changed? What has that felt like? Right? Is something going on in another person, right? Where something happened, it was a bad car accident, the person's kind of different, right? Or, or someone who just seems different over time, and you know that they're struggling with something. You know, it could be gender identity, sexuality, socioeconomic status, whatever it may be, right, that we can connect with one another and start putting words to what is going on inside of us, which opens up a, you know, a, a tremendous um, uh, realm of possibilities for making things better. But unless we go through that first door of acknowledging, look, what has happened to us and has it changed us, then, you know, we're on the other side of the door where all the help is, right, if that makes sense. So we have to acknowledge it, put words to it, uh, and very often we're not doing that, and it's at our own suffering and ultimately at our own peril. I think many of us, and probably that's close to the 70% that I mentioned in the beginning who suffer from trauma, we tend to repress it. We kind of want to initially put it away. That's the go-to, the yes. default behavior. And we want to reverse that is what you're saying. Let's not have that as the go-to behavior. Don't repress it. Don't try to cover it up. Right. The opposite. We're trying to open it up and to reveal this is what... and. and I mean, I think that's so important, yes. and uh, yeah, and and um, yes. particularly, yeah, um, precisely, right, precisely. We tend to hide it away, right? And, and why is that? Because of a sense of guilt and shame. And what we need to do is the exact opposite. If we hide it away, then it festers in us. And you know, I write, and I write about many stories and examples in the book, which is which is not an academic text. It's it's meant to be picked up and read by anyone who wants to understand this better. And I write about stories in the book, and, and some of those are my own stories, and how before I was in medicine, when I lost my youngest brother to suicide, and my reflex at the time was I felt terribly guilty and ashamed. I felt guilty that I didn't know it was what was happening. I didn't know, and I should have helped, and I felt ashamed that something like this you know, had happened, and, you know, what does it say about myself or my family? And, you know, and I saw the world through a very different light, and a light that didn't have the potential, the possibilities, you know, attached to it that I had felt before, and that I wasn't taking care of myself as well. And, you know, I was very fortunate that I had supported friends and family, and I ultimately got help. But the, the abrupt change uh, was really terrifying when I think about in retrospect that I wasn't identifying it that way. You know, I wasn't saying to myself, like, hey, you never felt this way about yourself, and why is it that you feel guilty about this, and, you know, why is it that you're not getting help, and then I think it's just one example of how our response to traumas that are big enough or, or protracted enough to change us inside is, is this reflex of hiding it away uh, when we need precisely the opposite, and hiding it away creates then changes in the immune system, all the, the cascade of physical problems, the extra risks of depression and addiction. So the hiding it away is, is very dangerous. Well, it, it, in an evolutionary sense, why do we think we do that? What is, what, what's the, is there a reason for that in terms of you know, what the research says? I mean, there must be some so reason likely, why. Yeah. Yes, abs right, absolutely right. This isn't happening, right, because our brains want us to suffer. 
right? There's something going on here that makes evolutionary sense, and that is probably that, you know, when we evolved as humans, right, we did not live nearly as long, right? And the, the, the goal was, right, stay alive long enough to reproduce, right, to perpetuate the species. So in the context of that, if there's a, a trauma that we react so strongly to by hiding ourselves away, right, that provided an adaptive survival advantage, right? If you get attacked by some animal and you never leave the cave again, right, well, you're more likely to survive and pass on your genes. But, but it doesn't work in the modern world where, you know, we are fortunately not always under imminent survival threat and we live lives that are much more complicated and much more socially interactive and that extend across longer periods of time. So th this reflex that is ultimately designed to keep us alive when, when our lives are imminently at risk, right, does not serve us in the, the more complicated uh, situations of modern life. Who do you know, I don't know uh, who are, that you're aware of, obviously, that is able to do this, that adapts really well? You know, as you say, most of us, probably 100% of us, I would say, are going to experience some kind of trauma in our life. Um, who are the people in, in your life who you would say have been able to adapt to trauma and have done it well or who do it well on an ongoing basis? Sure. So I think that's a, it's a great question because... You know the the answer, the, the answers to questions like that are usually not like very strong and sort of black and white. But but I think this answer is the, the difference is when a person accepts that okay like, this has happened to me whatever this is right and I need to not hide it away. It's that like light bulb going off that oh this reflex in me that's making me feel guilty, ashamed, afraid to share. If I share, I'll never. You know, I'll, never, I'll start crying and I'll never stop. Or like people will think so much less of me if I talk about this. Like it's it's that that keeps everything in a bad place. But when we get over that, we get beyond that, and we we become interested in what's going on inside of ourselves and interested in helping ourselves. We're we no longer sort of metaphorically have our hands tied or you know have our mouths blocked so we we can't talk right by the guilt and shame then that's when everything changes. And, and I've seen many, many, many countless examples of successful treatment where you know, that person's depression is resolved. That person is no longer having panic attacks. That person is living a better life. And they have a good relationship now instead of abusive relationships. They have a better job. They have better relationships with their children. Right? So we see that things absolutely can change. But of course, nothing changes if it's hidden away inside where it then just simply festers and grows. So it's very black and white whether we are ashamed and hide it or whether we are not ashamed and, and we don't hide it and we get the help we need. I think some of the examples when I see, for instance, families who lose children or have some tragic event, then they become, they, they start a foundation for that very event to help children who maybe the, the their kids died, died from a certain disease, or there are all kinds of examples of that when when individuals or right. families turn yeah turn tragedy into doing positive things for other people. Uh, I, I think that's a good yes. example. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But if we do good in the world around us, it shows us, it proves to us that there's good in us. 
right? And even though it doesn't make up for, it doesn't, of course, negate uh, the impact of the tragedy inside of us, it allows us to make meaning, right? And to recognize that whatever that trauma was didn't take away, the, you know, the goodness inside of us, right? The, the ability to be caring and loving, to both give and receive, right? The kindness and, and be caring to other people. And that's very, very bolstering. It's, it's why people often do what you just talked about. And it's also a, a way that people who have suffered from some sort of trauma can help themselves feel better by making the world a better place. I mean, I think that the trauma of, of the loss of my brother was, was instrumental ultimately in me going into medicine and becoming a psychiatrist and feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm able to help people who are going through the same things that I was going through. And, you know, we can all do that, right? We, we, you know, we don't, we don't have to do it in, in ways that involve a career change, right? We can, we can do that in ways that involve reaching out to the person next door, being more kind to the person we may disagree with politically, or, you know, whatever it is where, where there's a branch point of, you know, we can either take a, a sort of high road, kinder path, or we can act through anger, frustration, right? The kind of sentiments that build in us when we have unresolved trauma. And you think about how much trauma there is in this country. And again, this isn't a soft, you know, bleeding heart concept. I mean, we're talking about major trauma that changes us. How many people were lost in the pandemic? How many survivors are left coping with, with those losses? How many people are suffering from socioeconomic insecurity? How many people have lost a loved one? To addiction, right? It's it, these traumas that ultimately get perpetuated unless we look at them and we look at what they're doing to us, where they're coming from, and we decide that we need to make it different. You talk about it. This a trauma can also well it can spread among family members, but it, you also said that it can go across generations. So I'm thinking of the Holocaust. And how it's transmitted yes. from generation to generation, and there are many books out about that. That you know, the, the second and third generations are still suffering from the trauma of the Holocaust. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So, yeah, can you yeah, right. yeah, talk to us a little bit about that? The transmitting yes, of I, yeah trauma across generations. Yes. Yes. What we have learned, and this is validated scientifically, right? We have learned. An incredibly surprising fact, right? So it was thought that that the, the reasons that children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of trauma and anxiety-related problems was because their their parents, right, had gone suffered through the Holocaust and therefore sort of engaged in more anxious parenting and a more anxious uh, uh, view towards life in the world. And, and we learned that, yes, I mean, when, when we are anxious, we're sort of modeling that for our children, and, and, and like, that's something we want to be, be aware of. But we learned this amazing fact, which is that we change in terms of gene expression. So which genes are active in us and which genes are not, right, is changed by trauma. So trauma can occur, right? And then years later, so years later, a child can be conceived and that child can be changed by the trauma, even if, for example, that child is raised by different parents, right, who didn't go through the trauma. So, so there is a direct biological impact upon us genetically of trauma, which then goes further towards explaining 
the levels of anxiety and tension in children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors because it is not, in a sense, just the modeled behavior, but there are actual genetic changes that span generations from trauma. And, and I think in terms of hard evidence of what trauma does to us, I just can't imagine that there's stronger evidence. I mean, the, the, the evidence that's as strong may be that our genes age more quickly. So you can be 50 years old and your, your genetics, you know, your, your genes, your progression towards sort of running out of what we need to stay alive can be five years older, right? So that person is 60, but genetically they're 65, right? Because of trauma. So when you think of the trauma being transmitted genetically across generations and that it ages us faster than the calendar, I think those are, are probably the two most compelling uh, examples of scientific proof about what this does to us. So should we all have our, ge- ge- our <laughs> get gene sequencing? Would that be a good thing to see if there are any genes in our, that are, have been, uh, that we have that over generations that we have been, uh, uh, we, I guess, are not necessarily the Holocaust, but other kinds of things that may have happened in the past. Would that be helpful, I guess, in terms of our awareness of, of, of the traumas that we've suffered over the generations? Well, we're, we're not quite there yet. You know, the science isn't in a place where, where we can do that and identify, ah, like these genes are, these three genes are off and those two genes are on and that happens in the context of trauma. The science isn't advanced enough yet. So we have to approach through a different route, right, which is which really a clinical route or a route of identifying in ourselves okay, what has happened to us, right? Or what has happened to us generationally, right? How might I be impacted, right? And, and can I then go look at that and change whatever it is that's been, that's been altered in me? Can I change that back to a healthier place? You know, we, we have to approach it that way. We're not at the place of, say, taking a drop of blood and saying, ah, like this person needs trauma treatment, that person doesn't, right? I mean, we have to know it through what's going on inside of us, through knowing our histories and the histories of people around us, uh, and then being open and honest with ourselves about what may or may not be going on in us. You know, I'll give you an example. I talked recently to a friend who has had several children, but one child, the last child, was born after a very significant trauma. And, you know, she doesn't feel that she has behaved any differently, and, and it doesn't seem like that's the case. But the child is different than the child, children that came before she suffered trauma, right? So now with this knowledge, right, she's able to understand better. Like, oh, this didn't come out of the blue, and, and a lot of what the child is experiencing, and it makes sense in terms of the genetic changes that come from trauma. So now her focus is, well, okay, we, need to, we know now what we need to work on, right? They're, they're, they're you know, utilizing anti-anxiety strategies and coping strategies to try and help this little, this young, well, she's a teenager at this point, but to help her overcome, right, what was changed in her genetically before birth. So, so there's a direct applicability to just being aware of this. It helps answer questions and it helps us help ourselves and people that we love. I mean, Dr. Paul Conti, this is fascinating. Your book is and all the information that you've given us today. So I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can purchase the book and how they can be more aware of the work that you are doing, because um, we only 
I think covered the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, great. Uh, the title of the book is Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. And so Dr. Conti, tell us website and or websites we can go to for more information. Sure. The, the book is published through Sounds True. So it, it can be, you can learn about it and, and acquire it through the Sounds True website. There's also a website for the book that's just Dr. Paul Conti, and it's just D-R, and then my name, so D-R-P-A-U-L-C-O-N-T-I dot com that has some information about me and the book and and also links to where one could uh, could purchase purchase it if they choose. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great conversation. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 